Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, I, uh, I feel like I'm going to pull the intro down. This usually is a bit of a sillier show, and I don't feel like the tone of that really um, befits the subject that we're going to be talking about today or the guests I'm going to be speaking to. So let's do this dry. On November 19th of this year, one of the saddest, most terrifying, most bizarre, and most fascinating episodes in American history drew to a close with the death of Charles Manson. The story of the Manson family and the Manson murders now belongs to the past, except for those directly involved, that includes the survivors of the Tate LaBianca victims and uh, members of the Manson family, some of whom remain behind bars. And my guest today, Diane Lake, who has written the book Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult and the Darkness That Ended the 60s. Diane, thank you for coming and talking to me. You're welcome. So the first question, that I, the first subject that I feel like we need to address, people are going to say, and I'm sure have said to you, this is not something anyone should be profiting off of, writing a book about about this sort of thing. And I'm sure you've thought about that a little bit. And what's your answer to that? I, ha- I haven't made a profit yet. <laughs> okay, well, there's that. <laughs> and um, I did not, you know, contribute to the murders. So I haven't really decided what I'm going to do about that. But it this has been a tremendous expense for me um emotionally. It, it it's also brought closure and in helped me to integrate what happened to me um 50 years ago. But it's also the stigma of keeping it a secret and the association course uh that i have kept that that's the reason i have kept it a secret and just like things that are coming out now unbelievably uh you know harvey weinstein and now matt lauer i mean these women have kept the secret you know that they were assaulted or you know molested or harassed or you know because of the, it's the stigma. It's the association. They don't want to bring that up. Right. It's easier so, to just bury it inside and to not deal with other people exactly, reacting to it. Exactly. So um, I don't, I don't know. I haven't, you know, really given it much thought because this has been my journey. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my, been my journey of, um, like I said, integrating what happened to me with who I am now. Of course. Well, I'm sure people are interested in knowing what role you played in all this, so we will get to that, and you'll have an opportunity to talk about that. But let's just start from the beginning and talk about it in order. Your The book deals in large part with your family story, and I feel like there's almost a movie to be made about your family in and of itself. Um, it, the story of your family seems to me to be not a typical story of a family in the late 50s or 60s or what have you, but a story that kind of could have only happened in that period of time. How how do you describe, in a nutshell, the story of, of what where your family started and where it ended up by the time you met Charles Manson? I think that, I mean, we started out fairly normal, except that my dad was an intellectual, and he loved art, and he was an artist, and he really 
you know, his heartfelt desire was to get his master's degree. And then when he heard, you know, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, he really got excited about that and he wanted to come to California from Minnesota. So that was kind of, that kind of set the foundation. Uh, He tried to get to California, made, you know, made kind of a mistake by trading our house for a trailer that couldn't be pulled by our car. And then, you know... Not a details man. Yeah, yeah. And so, (laughs) not a car guy either. Right. Um, We ended up in California in 65. And so, my parents both had, you know, probably the best jobs of their life. So, it really sunk them into, you know, the whole establishment thing. Then Timothy Leary started expounding on, you know, LSD, hallucinogenics, that this was the panacea to enlightenment. And my mom got turned on by the people down the block to marijuana. She brought it home to my dad. They got turned on, you know, then they tuned in. We got hooked up with the Southern California Oracle underground newspaper that was an offshoot of the San Francisco Oracle. And, um, so we were introduced to communal, you know, to communes, and well, they how, ended up moving ex- in with us. Can you explain <laughs> how that how that works? So I wanted to ask you what the Oracle was all about. Why does working for a newspaper lead to living in a commune? They, um, my dad did like the psychedelic art, you know, and posters for them, and they were all, you know, exp- you know, living the Timothy Leary dream, you know, uh, of enlightenment and, you know, music and drugs and, you know, free, free love, you know, sex without, you know, necessarily having a partner. And, um, they lost their lease and they moved in with us. And then they, you know, my dad got the idea that, that we should drop out. So they're now, you know, turned on, they're tuning in to, you know, what Timothy Leary was expounding on. And then we know what comes next. And then they decided to drop out, which, you know, they were kind of an unusual situation. They were a little older than your typical hippie dropout, so to speak. And I was an anomaly because of my age. How old were you at that point? I was, when we dropped out, I was 14. Mm-hmm. But when we started, you know, on this I think I had my first acid trip when I was 13 in my own living room, provided, you know, with the tab of acid by my father. Oh, that's the last person I want in the room when I'm trying acid. We, I, I took it with my two best friends in my own living room. You know, my, my dad was probably in his studio. And oh, okay, so you weren't hanging out with him while you were on it? No. Oh, okay. That's the part <laughs> I was afraid of. <laughs> but we read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, so... You know, it was, and but apparently I I sang a lot of the Beatles songs. You know, out the Sergeant Pepper's. Um, I think the uh, something for Mister Kite. Yeah, right. My, being for the benefit of. Yes, yes. Uh, apparently, I saw all of the music like in in a vision. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was mm-hmm. all animated. <laughs> well, the Beatles lent themselves to that. Yeah. So um, anyway. Uh, so we dropped out, and it wasn't easy, five people living in a bread truck, and, 
I got a little bit disgruntled. My mother was a bit critical. And I walked out at Zuma Beach and met this other couple and their young son. And they invited us to come and live with them. I took acid with them as well as my my family. And I was sure that I heard God telling me that it was time to leave home. So I asked my parents if I, you know, could I be emancipated from them, you know, be on my own. So they wrote me a little note. I mean, it was nothing legal, but they wrote me a little note. And so that gave me that freedom to start with. And I I spent some more time with them. We went to Big Sur, and I ended up going to San Francisco with uh, with a guy. And then when I came back, you know, a month later, they were living at the hog farm commune. This whole period of time has always struck me as... I think what people often forget about the 60s, and, and I wasn't there, obviously, let me know if you agree or disagree, is the first time that I smoked a joint or did mushrooms or something would have been in the 90s. And you get these thoughts of, well, man, what if the world was, what if the world, could the world really be a better place? Why do we have all this garbage holding us back? But by the time I'm doing that, I go, yeah, that's a nice fantasy, but don't fall in love with it. They already tried all of that in the 60s and look at how that turned out. But the first time around, the first generation of human beings, you're in a country that's enjoying um, a, a post-war financial boom. You know, the the nature of the spirit of America, of this self-created, endless frontier. And now you've got acid, which allows people to expand their mental frontiers in ways that are almost unprecedented outside of maybe some Amazon tribes that have smoked some stuff that came off a frog somewhere. And you put all that – that's a real thing, by the way – and you put all that – together and you you can fall in love with these ideas but the the difference with that generation there's no way of knowing what you're trying this utopia you're trying to pull off really can't be done and is destined for failure although i don't think the people in the 60s realized it was destined for failure well, that's, that's what i mean now that's the we know and right. and and the manson murders really put the kibosh on it it was like yeah look what look what can happen right and and the drugs definitely contributed to it, but you know the major factor was was Charlie himself. You know, right? So you're 14 when you met him. What do you remember of that initial meeting? I walked in. Uh, a couple of friends brought me to this party at the Spiral Staircase House, which you know uh, it was where they were living. In addition to the black bus outside, and. I walked in, and the two two girls jump up and say, oh, "Diane, Diane, Charlie, Diane is here," and I'm just floored. Yeah, how did they know me? Right. And so he was playing the guitar, you know. Had you know the rest of the girls were you know rapturously listening to him, <laughs> and. Um, he ju- he jumped up. Oh, so this is our Diane, and he offered me some root beer. And um, later that evening, then he did, you know, seduce me. I'm sorry, just to back up a little bit. How how did everybody know that they were waiting for you if you'd never met them before? Uh, Charlie, who was then known as Black Bus Charlie, had made a couple of trips up to the hog farm commune where my parents were living, and uh, th- while I was in San Francisco, and they had actually taken a little trip with him out to like the Mojave Desert. And my mom thought he was great, polite, gentle, you know, she loved the girls. 
Which and, he was, which he was capable of being whenever he wanted to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, my mom had given them my picture because they were going to go to San Francisco, and she said, "My daughter's in San Francisco, you know, somewhere around the hate. And you know, if you go up there, you know, look for her. This oh. is this is a picture of her. But I, I, this, I had no idea that that had ever happened until I walked in to." Right you know, Charlie and the girls party and discovered that they knew me. So then that night you're 14 and he, he seduced you, right? Um, was it on a, a bus? Yes. And that was obviously not entirely off putting to the rest of his circle. I, I, I gathered that everybody sort of took that in stride. Yeah. That was, you know, kind of a, probably an initiation. He probably did that with, you know, at some point with like all the girls. Right. But um, it felt very, you know, loving. He was very sweet, very gentle, very patient. Um, and he made me feel like, and this was the, the primary, you know, um, emotional response is that I felt very um, welcome. Right. Yeah, you're out there on the road looking for a, a, a home, and obviously the home that you thought you grew up in had gone away, and this was a new this was a new family. Right. Well, even you know, yeah, I didn't you know I just didn't necessarily need a house, but I just needed yeah. to feel like I you know was loved and adored and belonged somewhere. Yeah, I mean, like home in the spiritual sense. Yeah, right? and at, at at the hog farm, the leader of the hog farm had actually let me know that they were uncomfortable with my being there and. Um, because I was jailbait. Ah, I see. So then from that point on, are you sort of one of his girlfriends? And how many other people also sort of consider themselves one of his girlfriends? Or is that not the, the best like way of looking at it? There's like six girls. Okay. There was like six girls. And um, I didn't join, you know, immediately, 100%. You know, I spent some time there. And then I, you know, went back to the hog farm and, you know, reevaluated the situation there and then I spent also some time with this couple Richard and Allegra who had taken me you know to live with them from the hog farm and I think I think they were friends of uh, Hugh and Bonnie Jeans and I I kind of think in retrospect that it was a little bit of a setup you know Mm -hmm. they didn't want me there but they didn't want to totally ban me so they had this other couple come and see if I wanted to live with them. Right. I think that's what happened. Gotcha. So uh, have you ever read Helter Skelter? Long time ago. Right. I, I, I read it, you know, pretty much right after Vince wrote it. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the only two books that I had read until I wrote my own book. Uh, we're getting off uh, the timeline a little bit, but when you read it, did you feel like it was more or less accurate? Yeah. Okay. So, so something that I remember from reading Helter Skelter was people saying that they had personally witnessed Charles Manson um, perform miracles. The one that sticks out in my mind is like picked up a dead bird and then all of a sudden open his hands and the bird flies away. Did you personally witness anything like that or did you hear anybody talking about anything like that? You know, I haven't heard that story for a long time. But, yeah, that does sound familiar. But I didn't I didn't witness it. But I that that does that does sound familiar but i don't think it was in fact a paranormal you know right there's probably other no. ways that that could have come together you can do that with a fly too 
Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, you know, you could have picked the bird up off the off the road and it, you know, it was stunned and yeah, and, yeah I, I but but that's the first time I've heard that for many, 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 many years. So Funny. Thanks for <laughs> Sure. Wherever you heard that. Yeah, there's a lot of stories out there. Yeah, I'm glad I could be of service. So uh things fairly quickly, it seems like I mean this whole period of time that you're with them is fairly quickly in the scheme of a of a lifetime, but um became verbally and even physically abusive toward you. Yes, he did. And when that happens, obviously a sane person looking back from a different place in your life go, I should have just gotten out of there the first time. Think I knew things were weird, but that's not what you did, obviously. No, uh, I was 14. Right. And, you know, I had different, you know, I, I didn't have a mature, you know, or a worldly or even a streetwise perspective on life. I just know that I needed, I needed an affection. You know, mm-hmm. I needed... And that didn't necessarily mean sex. It's just that, you know, in that day and age, that's what it, you know, turned into. Right. And then there's the old adage about, you know, women trade sex for love, men trade love for sex. Exactly. Which is an age old thing as well. You said that, no, I've read that Charles Manson had this amazing ability to figure out, to find people, and I know he said this publicly at his trial, that these children that that have taken taken my family are people that are kids that you didn't want they all were were cast away or felt like they had to leave their home or something so you kind of have to look at yourself for how these people got there they say that he had this really unique ability to to figure out what people needed he did in a in a moment and to and to give it to them and you said in the book also he knew what you were afraid of which is a very specific kind of thing. What were you afraid of when he met you that he saw in you? I I was afraid of, you know, um, not being loved, not being, you know, having a purpose. Okay. How does one person manage to... Because you said, you say in the book... You could tell him this one little detail and he might just throw it back at you or bring it back up weeks or even months later. Now, he's doing this with like a couple dozen people at the same time. How does somebody just keep all – how do you spin that many plates mentally? That's a real gift in a twisted way. Totally. And I think that was his genius. He really wasn't a good uh, reader. Lynn Lynette would read things for him. I mean, it's, it's not that he couldn't read, but he yeah. couldn't read well. But mm-hmm. he had an incredible ability, I think, to uh, remember, yeah. record everything that he had heard. And yep. he was able to, you know, reconstitute it or, you know, he was able to re-verbalize uh, it. I've known some people, including a person that I do another radio show with who um, doesn't he, he doesn't read and... It's almost like the the flip side of that is he has this amazing ability to read situations. And I don't know what that is. I think a lot of entertainers will have that kind of story. Uh, dyslexic people will have that sort of story that that's that's the, the, the thing. Not all of them, obviously, yeah. but some of them get as the um, the little makeup for not being blind people. Book. Right. Yeah. Have, you know, a mm-hmm. tremendous hearing ability. Yeah. Um, you know. Other people, and I was a special education teacher, so, and I worked with kids with autism. So, and they had an incredible, a lot of them had an incredible ability to re, you know, a play, 
yeah whole movie scripts mm-hmm. sing the the songs uh listen to somebody play the piano and go over to the piano and play it right so um i think that you know maybe charlie had that kind of a gift mm-hmm. but he also he didn't use it um positively yeah to put it very mildly he didn't use it positively i think he he used it for his own survival i mean he was kind of like a lost boy for most of his life not to excuse anything but he had a a a terrible you know yeah uh, and he didn't feel loved or adored either and he spent a lot of time in you know uh reform school and jail and i think when he came out the last time to find wow you know everybody was looking for a guru you know and this whole free love he just wow that fit hit all his you know um abilities you know yeah. he, he and, learned and, how to and desires he'd learned how to be a pimp you know he learned in he in you jail. know he yeah. could play music you know and wrote write music so he did have you know he had so he fit perfectly with the counterculture right wrong place wrong time yeah. so so to speak so what would a typical night at the the ranch. I've only read it. It's a spawn ranch is how you say it, right? Yes. What's just like an, a night when everybody's out there? What's going on? Um, For the most part, we sat around and listened to Charlie play songs, mm-hmm. you know, and then he and most of his songs had to do with, you know, like his philosophy, um, which was a little mix of everything. And um, but, you know, about free love and about, you know, getting rid of your inhibitions and living in the here and now. Those were kind of his, you know, major axioms. And then along with that, as we went along, it got stronger. And that was at some point he'd had a crucifixion experience. And then he would, you know, on acid. Mm -hmm. And then he would reiterate that. You know, he'd re... um, Capsulated. He, you know, he would show us again, and and then his name, man, son. He, I think, he really came to believe that he was a Messiah. And you, and you saw that. You saw, you saw that evolution happening. He didn't necessarily believe that when you met him. It was something that he grew into. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. And all along, uh, he had been talking about this race war because he, he according to him, this is he, this is what he was learning in reform school and in the jails all the black you know the black men were going to rise up and you know have a war against the white man in the establishment and so you know as his delusion grew i think that he you know and then we met somebody who introduced us to death valley it just the whole thing kind of grew oh you know and then there's this bottomless pit out there and you know we're we're and then the white album came out and that and then the race war became known as you know for us helter skelter do you remember him like actually listening to the white album and going see that's what that song yes. means yeah anything and he even played it backwards and he found more stuff that way yeah I, I, uh, no he okay. was he was he you know he was really into this and that's when the whole energy changed mm-hmm. um and it was all about going to the desert you know moving to the desert and 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 you know outliving or out surviving this race war that was going to happen 
and then we would rise, you know, when it was all over, you know, we'd rise and repopulate the earth, something along those lines. So it was very apocalyptic. At any point, do you remember making eye contact with anyone and saying, wait, this sounds a little, this guy's always been a little left of center, but this sounds crazy? No. I think for the most part, you know, the core members, the people that have been, you know, with him for a while were like, yeah. And he made it seem like it was this was really you know going to happen at least from my perspective I mean that's the only thing I have to go on I don't Mm -hmm. I don't have a mature adult mind and it looked to me like that's what that's that's what was was happening and that everybody was on board he had forest maps or topographical maps that covered a good part of California and he had them all taped together like on the saloon floor of Spawn Ranch. And he'd pore over those maps looking for a road or a path without taking highways that we could get to the desert. Now, you know, whether whether there was one or not, but it, it seemed plausible. Right. Look, the, I don't have anything from my personal experience that I can compare this to, but there are situations I was involved with and things that I did around the the age of the events that you're describing, 14, 15, where I, I, I say, I know that I did these things or I believed these things, whatever they might be, but they're so outrageous to me. I own them because I know that that is me and because I've always had that memory, but I literally, it feels like a different person did the stuff, some of these things that I did that I'm not proud of when I'm like 14, 15, 16, kids stuff. So I have to imagine that's sort of the way this feels for you. Yeah. Okay, so is that around you? Would you say when you started to think, or, or, or at least looking back, you realize things are starting to get bad here? This is turning into a different situation that's not a positive one. Right. Yeah, there were more dune buggies. There were more, you know, motorcycle, you know, gang varieties, mechanics going on, more vehicles are being stolen. Um, it's just, and it's a different energy. And I had disobeyed him. I was supposed to stay in the desert, and I came down into the valley and discover that they were now living at not at Spawn Ranch but at Gresham Street this you know not not two maybe 2 miles 3 miles away from Spawn Ranch and he was furious with me and Why did you do that what were you doing I felt abandoned you know um, So you thought you were leaving or at least taking a break from them No he I was supposed to be at at Charlie's instruction, I was supposed to stay in the desert. Right. So when you came into the valley, what what, what was your motivation? To get to get back with the family, and mm-hmm. it was Bobby Bosley that had come up to the desert, and um, he said he was looking for you know somebody to help him panhandle. So he must have been out of money. Mm-hmm. So um, I volunteered, you know, because I you know I was feeling, you know, left out. Okay. But the minute I left uh, Death Valley, I I just felt like, oh, this is a mistake. This is really, you know, I, I just felt like a salmon swimming upstream, you know, going against everything. But I didn't have a choice. And when I got there, he was furious. I'm going to find your parents. He did find my parents. But, you know, my sister said I just had a flat affect. I, you know, I, I was, and I, 
my parents are now uh, like boarding parents for an alternative high school. You know, they've they've gotten out of the bus, okay. you know, out of the bread van, and they're you know they're starting to assimilate back into society. It may be an alternative, but still, yeah. you know, it, it much more normal. Um, and so there were all these other teenagers living at the house, and I just wanted to jump up on the roof and spew out all Charlie's, you know, crap. And I found my way back. Okay. Yeah, because you felt like you were in a possession of a truth that the rest of the world kind of really needed, if whether or not it was just going to get to them. And I just couldn't, and my mom's with a new, you know, a new, she has a new husband. Mm -hmm. And I just did not, you know, I just... I was so uncomfortable. And so I went back and then he took me to, I stayed with Gary Hinman, took me to Gary Hinman's, I stayed with him for, you know, a week. And then, um, then he dropped me off at Spawn Ranch. Um, Squeaky might've still been there. I'm not sure, but there was another commune that had moved into some of the, the, the outbuildings. And so I, I, I stayed with them and um, ended up going to, you know, a movie on acid that was horrible. <laughs> anyway, um, would you? Have... I ended up back with. I ended up back with the family, but I was never. I didn't feel like I was ever part of the. It was never the same. I understand. If I, had, to the best that you can remember, if I had asked you at that point of time, is this group or members of this group capable of murder? What do you think you would have said? No, I. I didn't think they were capable of stealing cars. Yes. Very different level of, but, of crime. Yeah. Um uh, yeah. and that wasn't even prevalent. Mm-hmm. It was happening, but um and a lot, a lot of people were just like volunteering to do that or made money off of drugs and bought vehicles. I I don't I don't know. I wasn't privy to that kind of information, but it, the energy was all about getting to the desert looking for the bombless pit and um, surviving this race war that was going to happen. So where were you? Were you in, were you in a, a, a holding cell or something around when the, the the murders actually occurred? You weren't with the family when they happened, right? No, I was at Spawn Ranch. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. And But you found out after the fact. Yes. It is, and I think this is for me always been one of the many things I find so fascinating it's just it's it's I think it might be the most horrifying thing that I can imagine because when you're a kid you're afraid of like a monster under your bed and that's not real but the idea that I mean you've raised a family the idea that you could be sitting in your home having an ordinary night and people could just enter for no reason that you've never met that you have no grievance with who are going to see such a ghastly thing through Right, and 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 then they confess that they've done that to you. I know, just shocking. Mm-hmm. You know these people, and I'm in the desert, and now I'm in the desert. Well, actually, when text told me I was just on the periphery, but we were then waiting for the rest of the family to come, and we were going to go. And I know I knew nothing about the murders, and this was not like an un. This didn't seem unusual because. We had waited before in Alantia for, you know, all the members of the family to arrive and then go to the desert from there because that's kind of like the gateway mm-hmm. to Death Valley. And um, 
he slapped the new he I I didn't even know about the murders. Not that these people that I had loved were, you know, perpetrators, but that they'd even happened because we didn't watch television, you know, we didn't read newspapers. Yeah. And Tex had the had a newspaper with the Tate LaBianca, you know, headline and slapped it and said and showed it to me and said I did this. Charlie told me. Told me to. And I was just I I, I mean I, I what? I couldn't believe it. And then I was afraid to leave because if this man was capable of killing Nicole, you know, what's going to stop him? Now he, he's told me. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, I still had that much of a brain left. You yeah, now, you're, now, you're, <laughs> now, you're, now you're in the mafia. You know, you're part of the gang, like it or not. Right. I mean, so so I didn't think I could leave. I think it's become more and more acceptable and understood in our culture that sometimes people who commit crimes are it's a criminal act, but they are themselves victims. You know, there's recently a story in the news of uh, a woman, a, a girl who had this horrible upbringing and um, was uh, made into a prostitute and murdered a guy that she'd been set up with for, you know, uh, sex for money. And people are saying, well, she's not a criminal because of the situation that she was in. When you think about the, the people who perpetrated the Tate LaBianca murders, to what extent do you see them as victims of their lives and their circumstances and what they'd been through with Charles Manson? And to what extent do you see them as criminals? Wow. That's pretty um, in-depth. I have to really think about that. But I, 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 I don't, I never thought of these people as capable of, you know, what they did. Well, certainly if they'd never met him, they wouldn't have gone and done that. No. Right. I I don't think so. I mean, you know, from my perspective, I think they were brainwashed. Mm-hmm. You know, they were brainwashed the same way I was brainwashed in that this was really going to happen. But maybe they were more committed to Charlie or or more, psych- you know, psychotic themselves. I, I don't know. I just am amazed that they could have that they could have done that. And then when they told me, they told me in such a way that it seemed like they they weren't remorseful. You know, they were like almost gleeful. That's, that's the, you know, how I remember it is that when they told me, they were like, oh, and, you know, we did, you know, like they were talking about boys and a party or something. It was, you know. Yeah. Susan, you know, said that uh, Sharon Tate had, you know, begged, pleaded for the life of her baby. And and Susan said that she had told me that she had considered saving the baby, you know, which was in in and of itself. I mean, she hadn't had a baby that long, you know, before herself. Yeah, to not be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Right, right. So I I just... I can't believe what I mean, and I especially can't believe that uh, you know Patty Krenwinkel had any participation in that. I I didn't know Leslie really that well, but Leslie was I don't know. She'd been like a prom queen or princess or homecoming or something, and she just had this this aloofness about her, 
Um, and Tex was kind of a wild man, and I'd seen, you know, he, he took some belladonna tea and got really, really sick. So, and, and I think he took speed. You know, I think he he did some speed, and I think that I read in, in a book that they had taken speed before this, which, you know, makes it seem more possible that they could have done this, that they were truly out of their, you know, out of their minds. But it's just, it's, it's, it's really, um, it's still very horrifying to me that they could have done this. And so are they criminals? Yeah, they are. Were they criminals at heart? No, I don't think so. I think they just got all caught up into Charlie's psychotic delusion. And um, they, and, and maybe it was a cover up to the Hinman murder. I'm sorry, what's the the Hinman murder? The Hinman murder was um, Bobby, I think Bruce, Mary Bruner, and Charlie like came and cut his ear off. But Gary Hinman was a musician in Topanga. And there's several stories, you know, was it a, a you know, a meth deal that, you know, was he making meth and it went, it went, it was a bad and they were trying to extract, they were trying to extract some money out of him was, is the bottom line. Why, you know, did he get an, had he inherited money, mm-hmm. you know, or did he, you know, have this bad drug deal, whatever. And it went bad and they ended up, he ended up getting killed and Bobby drove his car and got arrested and so then you know so did that precipitate it's like okay let's cover this up and we'll start helter skelter i don't know i mean these are just theories yeah right i per, i mean personally i do not have you know the direct evidence that yes it was a cover up or in that they decided to you know start helter skelter or if that was the plan all along, I really, I don't know. So then skipping ahead a, a little bit, a, a lot happens in a short period of time after you're out there literally looking for the bottomless pit, which I, I knew that, I knew for people who don't know, right, the idea is you're going to go down there and the race war is going to happen and black people are going to win, but then you're going to come back up. Uh, correct me if any of this is wrong, as I recall it from um, Bugliosi's book. It, um, black people will will defeat the white people in this war, but they'll find out that they're not able to rule the the world because they've never had that sort of power before. So then they're going to need somebody to anoint as their king, and that will be Charles Manson with you all around him. Well, I don't know about anointing him the king. Okay, but, you know we were going to rise from the ashes and yeah. you know re you know populate or re you know organize the world and okay. it'd be a better place. You know, and this all mm-hmm. goes hand in hand with his thinking. You know that he is man's son. You know mm-hmm. that he is Christ. Right. You know, right, or the right. second coming. So yeah, just again, I I always knew about the bottomless pit. I never actually thought about the logistics of that. Means you got to go out there and look for the pit. But when you're out there, people are arrested. Many of you are in jail. At a certain point, you you flip to use the the parlance, and you end up on the stand testifying against Charles Manson in a trial that is such an international sensation that. The the president Nixon arguably tampers with it by by you know uh, the, he he says in the um, you've got this crazy guy on trial so they put on the cover of the newspaper Nixon declares Manson guilty Manson finds a way to get that into the courtroom so the jurors can see that the president of America has already said he's guilty which should in his mind make mistrial a, yeah mistrial right 
what is it like taking the stand on, in that sort of circus? Another detail that just has always blown my mind is the fact that so there's the family that's been arrested, but there's other people who haven't, and they're outside the courtroom. And throughout the trial, additional young people are coming and joining them. That is, that's about as dark as it gets. It's crazy. Yeah. And there's still... Yeah. There's still people. I mean, I went to Spawn Ranch uh, a couple of weeks ago, right pe- two days before his birthday, actually. And someone had been there by the creek and wrote with sticks, not not taking a stick and, and writing it in the dirt, but actually took the time to break sticks uh, up and spell out happy 83 Charlie. And each each word was about a foot high. So, yeah. you know, are these, these are obviously fans, you know, whether they were part of the family or they were wannabes or they have since, you know, joined. I mean, it wasn't too long ago there was, a, what, a 21-year-old that wanted to marry him. I thought that it came out that she was not sincere about that and that it had been some no, sort of she publicity. No, she just wanted to, um, you know, when he died be able to acclaim as a state or, you know, right. whatever. I, I, I don't know, you know. What were you doing out there recently? At Spawn Ranch? Yeah. Location shoot. Ah, I see. Okay. Book stuff. You got to, yeah, you got the book. You got to talk about the book. I understand. Right, right, right. Have you had any contact with anybody from that circle no. from from 1970 onward? No. Not at all? No, not since I saw them at the trial. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, it, I was afraid that in his presence that, you know, he would intimidate me, you know, maybe have, you know, control over my mind again. On the stand, you mean? Right. Yeah. So I was a bit intimidated and had to walk past the girls, you know, and I'm sure they shouted out some, you know, things. And I, you know, all the things that I'd remembered, you know, them saying, you know, oh, you know, we don't we don't talk to the pigs, you know, don't. You know, be loyal. You know, all that all that stuff kind of flooded through my mind. But I, I needed to tell the truth. I had, like you say, flipped. You know, I, I, I was no longer anti-establishment. And, you know, I, I had spent nine months in a hospital, mental hospital, which had done wonders for putting me back together, you know, and, and cle- cleaning up my mind. So when I faced him and... He did his antics. I I realized, oh, my God, you know, he's just a little con, you mm-hmm. know. The spell had been broken. The spell had been broken. And then, I didn't know this, you were taken in and raised, I mean, you were pretty close to an adult at that point, by the arresting officer. Right. That's amazing. Yes. It, he he saw something in me worth saving. Um, he had two younger children, you know, a teenager and a younger boy himself. And so that was really magnanimous of him to take me in. He saw something worth saving, and that gave me back yeah. my self-worth. And then you you got married, hiding in plain sight by just taking your husband's last name in, in marriage. Pretty and, much. And you raise children who never know any of this. Did your husband... Oh, oh yes. Okay. Okay. Oh, of course. And he's yeah. the only one. But he's the only one. I I ended up uh, telling my pastor. 
Okay. And, oh my, you know, wow, that's probably the most exciting confession any pastor has ever heard. And of. really, you know, a, a couple of close, close yeah. friends. Yeah. But that, but that was pretty much it until I wrote the book, or until I was. You know, till it was definitely in the process. And, and then, then, what what would you think? Because it comes up in the culture. Obviously, it's it's a thing that's that's out there. When it comes up, what do you think of it in your new life as essentially a whole new person? Grin and bear it. Uh-huh. You know, and just I'm amazed. I mean, for instance, um, I was in Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher was part of the Rotary, and Vince Bugliosi had come and talked. Oh, to that Rotary Club, right? And so he was telling us in Sunday school about what Vince had shared. And of course, what he was sharing was his, you know, about the Manson murders and his, you know, his prosecution. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's just like, you know, nobody, nobody knows. Nobody knows except my husband. You know, and so I'm just like grinning and bearing it, you know. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. And then it comes it, up all the time. I mean, it does. My husband of uh, 36 years died about three, a little over three and a half years ago. I'm sorry. And I went on a date, you know, from match.com. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the very first things he's telling me is how. He and his kids, or I, I can't remember the details, but it had something to do with an apartment or a house that they were going to rent or something. And he said, oh, my gosh, you'd think that the Manson family had lived there. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> it's just like, uh, and I know that he doesn't, you know, if he listens to this show, he'll know who he is. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's stuff like that that, that comes up or, you know, it, it comes up on TV and people now call me and say, oh, did you did you see so-and-so's up for parole? And Right. Um, do you think anybody who's in jail should get out of jail? Uh, from obviously They from were this. all, you know, they were all handed the death penalty mm-hmm. and then that was overturned in California. So, you know, I... I it's it you know i get really torn and so i have to say that it's 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 not up for me to even you know make an opinion on that it's it's between them and god and the governor and that's why we have a justice system is because people who are very close to things shouldn't make these decisions right you know that's less developed countries have a lot of problems because there isn't an effective judicial system so when you finally have to tell your children about this how does that go Actually, it went it went very well. I mean, they were you know old enough. My um, oldest son was in college, and he we told him over the phone. So he was quite shocked and amazed, and and just you know in unbelief. Really, mom, you know, and he he doesn't remember telling us, but he he told us that uh, he slept with a baseball bat under his bed for a while. And my daughter was home. Wait, why? Why did he do that? Boogeyman. Uh-huh. I mean, it it just brought it closer to home. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've talked to you know some other people, probably your age, who on their paper route when it was you know they're delivering papers in the dead of night or early you know in the early morning and it's dark, you know, and they hear a noise or whatever, and they're looking over their shoulder. Who are they? Who are they looking for? 
Charlie Manson. I was a, a <laughs> I was a doorman when I was reading Helter Skelter. I was in high school. I was like a fill-in guy over the summer so the real guys could take vacation. And in the middle of the night, I used to have to, in my rounds, go down into the basement of this apartment building in Manhattan. And I was so freaked out reading the book. Like a little kid, I would go down there and I would run and do what I had to do and run back up. Well, who I thought was going to be coming around the corner, I don't know. But it, it's that's what it is. It's it, The boogeyman. Yeah. You know? Right. It's the monster under the bed. And he... You know, he took that place of, you know, the monster under the bed, which is really sad, you Mm -hmm. know, and I hope I'm, you know, his death has brought a tremendous amount of relief and I hope closure and especially closure for the families of the victims. What did you think when you got the news that he passed away? Anything? Oh, I knew he had been in the hospital and he was, had been in the hospital or had been hospitalized back in January and, and gotten out, um, and so, and then the rumor was, this might be the end, you know, this might be the end for him. And so when I heard it, it was, it was, a, it was a, a relief, you know, it's just like that, the black cloud, you know, it, it rained and went, you know, cleared up. Yeah. So I hope, and I hope that this will end a lot of the following, you know, you know, this magnetism that he had, even from the jail, he gets more, he got more letters than any inmate in California. Maybe in the United States, but he got a tremendous amount of fan, you know, fan mail, not hate mail, like fan mail. And that's really, that's really frightening that he has been elevated to that level. And so I hope that his death will, you know, kind of, uh, that this era has run its course. Um, The last question I wanted to ask you is, do you think that what the public thinks about him and about that whole situation, is there anything that we're missing? Is there something that we get wrong about that? Is it different in any way than those of us on the outside perceive it to be? There are so many theories, so many theories, and so many people who have dissected this case ad nauseum. And um, part of the reason I wrote my book was because people were starting to write my story for me. You know, without ever contacting me, of course. But, you know, they were starting to write things from my perspective or my perspective perspective. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, yes. I so, it, it, you know, it was time. Um, it, it, it was time to bring out the truth, you know, and secrets are toxic. You know, they take on a life of their own. And so, you know, I'm I'm happy to have un, you know, burdened my soul and untethered the sh- myself from the shame of the association because I did nothing wrong, and in fact, I was a victim. Yes. So, yes. and I I really never thought of myself as a victim, um, uh, in an emotional, in an emotional way. I mean, technically, I was, but you know, I never really felt like a victim until I went through this process well the book is uh remarkable and i've enjoyed what i've been able to read and i'm looking forward to reading it in its totality if anybody wants to check it out i've been speaking to diane lake the book is called member of the family my story of charles manson life inside his cult and the darkness that ended the 60s thank you very much you're welcome